Welcome to the Marty Smith's America Podcast, Volume 5. Unique show today. I had the great opportunity to hang out with former Memphis State. That's what it was called when he was there, Memphis State. It is now the University of Memphis. Uh, star, Anthony Penny Hardaway, who was recently named the head basketball coach at his alma mater. And the conversation is tremendous. I learned a lot about him. I learned a lot about his convictions. He displays uh, in great detail what his expectations are at Memphis. And I think it will, I don't know if shock is too too uh, dramatic a word. I was a little taken aback with how honest he was at what he expects to accomplish at Memphis. So we appreciate him uh, coming on. And I also, it is Marathon Monday when this podcast posts, this edition of the Marty Smith America podcast. And it is a very special day throughout this country, especially for folks like myself who have competed in the Boston Marathon in the past. I ran the race in 2014, and it was one of the most emotional days of my life. And I detail that for you guys uh, in this week's Marty Party. And have you ever wondered what Wawa has on the morning menu? Buckle up. Strap in tight. It's a good one. So without further ado, here is Volume 5 of the Marty Smith's America Podcast. <laughs> What's up, man? You're a busy man. You're the hardest working man in the business. <laughs> Brother, I could use a 20-second timeout. I'm not lying. I can't uh, I can't thank you enough for doing this, though. I know you, you're hopping on it, too. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, I, my, my feet hit the ground moving uh, as soon as I got the job because I got into the game so late. We're going to get into that uh, all about you joining your alma mater and hanging out with the Tigers again uh, as we get through here, but... I got all kind of things I want to talk to you about, man. I want to talk about Little Penny. I want to talk about <laughs> blue chips. But we'll start with ball. I read that when you were announced officially as Memphis' new head basketball coach, they cheered for 20 seconds straight and didn't stop. What did that tell you? Uh, that told me that, <laughs> that they were expecting a lot, <laughs> the 20-second the, the applause. But, no, it just showed me that they were just, you know, just appreciative for me to, to take on this challenge. And they, they know it's going to be a, a, a great challenge. What is the challenge? The challenge is to, you know, get this team back in the top five rankings in the country and to get it back to a national championship game. You said during your press conference that you're not just a face. You're a difference maker. What difference must you make? Well, the difference I have to make is the, the talent that we get in here. Uh, we got to get five-star kids in here, uh, along with some hardworking kids that are just going to go out there and that the fans are going to appreciate, that they're going to want to see play every night, that they're going to uh, fall in love with because of the style that we play. First head coaching job at the college level. What have you already learned in April of your tenure that you didn't expect? Well, the one thing that I didn't expect, uh, well, I thought it was going to be more basketball, but really so far it's been more uh, kind of running a Fortune 500 company, trying to make sure all the T's across the I's are dotted with the rules, uh, compliance is on speed dial. The compliance department is on speed dial on my phone. <laughs> of course, uh, they actually uh, we actually moved them into the, our practice facility. So if I had any questions, I could just go right to them. But we just want to be uh, mindful of you know any little thing that could happen with the kids or with me doing something un, uh, inadvertently or, or or making a mistake on something that could really cost us. And really, I just learned that this job is more about that more so than it is about the coaching because the season isn't it hasn't started. Why do you feel like you're the man to lead Memphis back to glory? Well, I feel like I'm the man for the job because I have the connections as far as like the relationships with the kids. Uh, I've been in uh, middle school, high school, AAU for the last eight, nine years, and I built a lot of relationships and coached a bunch of kids over the years. And I feel like that that gives me an advantage, sort of say, on, on recruiting the kids that uh, that most of the coaches around the country want because I've already been in contact i've already coached them or, or had some kind of communication with them or their parents over the years a lot of my listeners on the marty smith's america podcast may have seen the piece that we did on you coaching your friend's team but a lot of them may not have i would love for you to just take as much time as you need to tell that story because i was very moved by it and i thought it was brilliantly done and extremely admirable on your part yeah, thanks so much. Uh, it just goes back to my, uh, my childhood friend. His name was Desmond Merriweather. Uh, when we were younger, we were just, you know, basically playmates. We did everything together, played basketball in the park, 
uh, all of the things that you do as, as a young man, you know, growing up in a, a really uh, humble uh, neighborhood. And um, I went off to the NBA. He stayed here and uh, he started working into the, in our community, trying to just better the kids, the community, the environment, do whatever he could. And every time I would come back home in the summer, we'd briefly meet, talk about our vision and what we wanted to do. And once I retired, that we would reconnect. I didn't think that we would reconnect in the way that we did. But after I retired, I came back home and I met up with Desmond and we put together like an alumni game uh, for our old middle school versus the high school that the kids, you know, kind of graduate. The middle school kind of transfers to that school. So after we played the game, you know, he was already, well, I have to rewind a little bit. He was diagnosed with colon cancer before I came back home. And when I came back home, he was still in great spirits. I was more worried about his health and he was more worried about the community and the kids in the community. So he asked me to come aboard and help him coach the middle school team. And I went thinking that I was going to just go to a couple practices and show him some things and just keep, you know, doing what I was going to do with, uh, with my retirement. And it ended up, you know, being a three year experience with the kids that, uh, you know, that we can't forget. We had, uh, Wayne Drash, who was a writer with CNN. He wrote a book about it. They did the, the 30 for 30. Uh, on the uh, situation with myself and Dez, but it was so powerful because Desmond, when he got diagnosed with cancer, he was actually going to chemo that morning and still coming to the games that night and sitting on the bench mm-hmm. and trying to fight with no energy uh, to help these kids just succeed. And man, that touched me so so much. There was no way that I could I could turn him down. I felt like that was my calling to uh to help him out and three years went by we won three straight championships i could see him visibly you know getting sicker and weaker and man lasted another year he was only given like 24 hours to live when he was diagnosed with this with this cancer but he fought it off for like another five years and in that last year was the year that we didn't coach together uh we had to graduate the kids from middle school to high school and he passed away that year before we he could ever see us win another state championship or, or see our dreams come true. He, he was, I call him a prophet because he called the three straight championships in middle school. And then he said, we're going to go to high school and win four in a row. And then we'd go to the university of Memphis and win a national championship and then go and coach the Memphis Grizzlies and win the NBA championship. That's the type of imagination and how, how huge his heart was and how competitive he was that he called that and everything that he called pretty much has come true. It's just unfortunate that he passed away of the colon cancer like four years ago. And he's not able to see the, the, uh, really the fruits of his labor, what he's created, what he created. And then I came in and took over and kind of started helping out. So he calls that you're going to go to Memphis as the head coach. Yeah. After we won the championships, <laughs> consecutive championships in high school, which is what we just did. And then now the job is all of a sudden is opening. There's an opening. You can't make this up. You can't even like script this any better than how he scripted it because and how he, he called it because it's actually happening. As we're, you know, I'm living this every day. What he called seven years ago is amazing. What would he say? What would he say about the fact that you are coaching the Memphis Tigers? He would just say, you know what? I called it and, uh, let's go ahead and win a national championship for the Memphis Tigers. <laughs> what, what did his fight teach you? His fight taught me that, you know, you have to things, sometimes things in life are, are bigger than you. You have to sacrifice. It, 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 it taught me a lot of, you know, how to sacrifice because with me being with the kids, at the uh at the school and with Desmond, I was kind of sacrificing my own kids, but they understood, and it was a higher purpose at that time, if that makes sense, for me to be where I was. And I was in my old neighborhood where I grew up. I went to that same elementary school, which was now a middle school, and I was coaching and teaching the kids that I grew up with their parents. So I mean, this is it's an amazing movie that needs to happen because just just talking about it is just it's surreal, honestly. To to talk about how all of this unfolded from when we were kids to when I came back to help him coach, him getting diagnosed with cancer, and 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 the, and the, and the magical run that we went on for for three years together before he passed after getting the colon cancer and being given 24 hours to live, he just fought it, man. He's a fighter. He just Had would not give from in. Hollywood. I, Wayne Drash, the writer of that book uh, on these courts, called a couple days ago and said we're getting a lot of interest now because I, I think they're seeing. How this thing is unfolding. I went through middle school, high school. Now I'm in college. Uh, it's national news that I'm the coach of the University of Memphis and it's getting bigger and bigger. So now there's more interest with, with, with the movie, with the movie guys now. Fascinating. Well, you obviously you know how to act. You could just play you. <laughs> <laughs> While you were a player, what did your vision of retirement look like? Because it doesn't sound like it's what it is. No, when I was a player, my vision was, okay, we'll go back to Memphis and, 
continue to give money to the community, uh, touch on some things that I need to touch on, you know, whatever, wherever I'm needed. And then I'm going to play a lot of golf. I'm going to play lots of golf. <laughs> uh, I'm going to watch my kids grow up and, 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 and that's it. That's, that was my vision, uh, for when I retired, but basically just, you know, play a lot of golf, be around family, have a chance to exhale because I didn't go out on top. I didn't go out the way that I wanted to in the NBA with the injuries being injury riddled and, I was ready for something different, but I didn't know I was going to go right into coaching. How would you define your NBA career? I would define my NBA career being great. The reason why I say great is because I gave it my all. Uh, For the first seven years, eight years of my career, I was dominant. You know, more so the first five, six, but the last two or three, I kind of played decent. And then the last six, it was just, you know, just trying to get overcome injuries. But I would say my career was great because my numbers, what I achieved in such a short time, um, and the numbers that I had and the things that I accomplished uh, were were second to none. You know, I always find the mental toll of injury to be fascinating psychologically. I just had a, a conversation with Rory McIlroy, the PGA star. Yeah, I know Rory. About well. last year, uh, he struggled because he had a rib injury, a thoracic spine area type of, of injury, and he just couldn't perform to his optimum potential. And he actually said to me, there were some tournaments he didn't even feel like he belonged in. He didn't think he'd earned the right to be there because he hadn't put in the work. And I found that to be so interesting. Like, you're a professional. You're one of the greatest in the world. Why don't you feel worthy? So I, I'd like to ask you, what's the what was the mental toll of knowing I'm better than that guy? I just can't do it right now. Man, it's, it's devastating. It's, uh, you know, going from where – like where I was as a rookie, explosive, fast, quick. Uh, I had a mismatch every night. I was averaging over 20 points a game. Uh, things were coming easy to me. And to have those injuries, to take all of that away and basically become less than average. I mean, I can't say it any better than that. I couldn't jump anymore. I couldn't run anymore. I couldn't explode. And, man, it's just so devastating to the mental because I did walk into arenas more embarrassed than I had ever had uh, walked into an arena. You know, the first part of my career, I was walking in head up like, you know, this team is going to have problems tonight. You know, I'm going to go for 40. And then walking in, you know, seven years later and saying, man, am I going to make it tonight? You know, I, I hope my knees hold up. I hope I don't feel as much pain tonight. And it just it just weighs on you. Embarrassed is a hell of a word. It that is. That was the emotion, embarrassment? It was embarrassing because you go from being a superstar to just being – and a household name for just being just less than average because of injuries. Hypothetical. If you don't get hurt, what's your career look like? If I don't get hurt, I have a couple NBA championships. I know I would have one MVP for sure, and I'd be in the Hall of Fame. Totally. <laughs> I agree. What was the most memorable moment of your NBA career? Uh, the most memorable moment was my second year, that run going to the finals. Even though we got swept by Houston, it was just such a – so many great things happened in that playoff series with uh, with our team. We closed down the Boston Garden, the legendary Boston Garden, with all the history of all the Celtic teams that have won championships. We played the final game there when we beat them in the playoff series. And then we were the last team, the next series, to uh, defeat the Bulls and Michael Jordan. So we're in history in a couple couple ways during that entire run, even though we did get swept at the end. Being on the floor with MJ, what was that like the first time? Man, you know, it was. I had to look at him a bunch. To be like, this is really Michael Jordan that I'm playing against. <laughs> I would never have letting him, you know, known that. Sure. Because he, that would have been, he would have loved to just smell, smell blood in the water and be like, you know what, this kid is, he's more in awe of me than competing. I competed to the death, but I was still looking like, wow, I'm actually competing against Michael Jordan because he came back halfway during the season, the year that we were really rolling and we were the number one team in the NBA. He came back halfway during that season. So we didn't expect for him to come back and he just all of a sudden pops up out of nowhere and goes, I'm back. And we go, wow, okay, well, here we go. Let's do it. <laughs> it's funny. You know, back to golf just a second. I've spoken with several golfers about the first time they ever played around with Tiger Woods. And so many of them have the same story. It took me nine holes to stop watching Tiger and start playing golf. I can what, see that. Is it, did that happen with Mike? Uh, no, with me, no, okay. I was like, if you don't play right away, you're going to get embarrassed. Like that was, <laughs> Michael wanted to embarrass you. He wanted to intimidate you. So my whole, uh, process out there on the floor was I'm going to go after him to let him know it's a new sheriff in town and that he was going to have problems with me uh, for an entire game. So that was my thought process when it came so, to Michael. I found it interesting that 
prior to being drafted, you were projected to go after Chris Weber. So you requested a second workout with the Magic. Why was that an important decision for you? Well, because I was doing the movie Blue Chips with Shaq, and uh, our director, William Friedkin, was allowing us to play normal basketball. Nothing was scripted except for the very last play when I threw the lob to Shaq. So we played basketball every single day. And my whole thing was I was there to just cater to Shaq no matter in all facets. So I made sure every time he got the ball, where he wanted it, I didn't even think. It was a mission of mine to let him know that, hey, man, you need me, and I need you. Let's get this done. And Shaq actually called and said, you guys need to bring him back down because I did such a great job of, you know, getting him the ball and making him feel very comfortable. When he gave me that second they gave me that second chance. I knew that I was I was on the right page. What was the Shaq phenomenon like to live every day? It was amazing. I mean, Shaq still today, wherever he goes, he's he's going to cause a riot because everybody still loves the big fellow. But back then, it was, I mean, he's a rock star, you know, in, in, a, in a basketball uniform. And he loved the attention, and he had such a great personality. And it was just amazing just being a part of that phenomenon. What's it like to be his teammate? What's the impact on your own game of having a presence like that on your team? You can't even measure it. That's how big it is. He just made my game so easy because he got a double team every time. You couldn't guard him one-on-one. So with me having one man trying to guard me was tough for any guy in the NBA. So Shaq allowed that to happen for me, which made my game way easier. Those teams, you guys had some great teams, though. This is off the top of my head. I remember Shaq, you, you guys had Dennis Scott. Horace yes. Grant, right? Didn't you guys have Horace too? Yes. That's a tremendous group right there. We had the five that was amazing. Nick Anderson was like oh, the yeah, leading Nick scorer. Was good too. He was the leading scorer on the team until Shaq got there for those years. And then Dennis Scott, one of the best three-point shooters in NBA history. And Horace Grant, arguably one of the best power fours to ever play the game. And uh to have those guys plus myself in a starting lineup, that lineup was amazing. And all of us were above 6'7". I mean, Nick might have been, he was 6'6", six, six, then I'm 6'7", then it's 6'8", Horace 6'10", and Shaq 7 foot. That was a huge lineup. You mentioned that you feel like without injury you would have been an NBA champion. You were not injured at that point. What should that team have achieved? Well, we should have gotten the one against Houston. Uh, we allowed some veteran players to kind of hang around, and they took advantage of it. We were so young. We were so naive. We thought that we would get back there every year. At least I did. And we didn't just we didn't seize the moment. But we should have won that series against Houston. Because earlier that year, and I know it doesn't matter later in the year what happens in the beginning of the year, but we beat them both times by 20. And at one point during the game, we were up like 15 or 17 points, and they made a run on us, which what veteran teams do, and they never looked back. So we should have one for sure. So you mentioned blue chips a moment ago. <laughs> when you look back at that now, what do you see? I see greatness, like that movie. Uh, it told Man, I love so that many, movie, dude. I'm it told serious. so many stories. Thank you. It told so many stories of, you know, what what's, what was going on in sports back then and with the FBI probes and the NCAA things that are going on right now. It, it just basically was the movie was ahead of its time. You know, it was – this was 1992 or three, 1992. So, man, I, I feel like it's one of the best sports movies, basketball movies out there for sure. I was going to, to say that very thing. It was almost foreshadowing to what we see now. Yes. Okay, now you're in a head coaching role at a tradition-rich university that expects to do well. And we see this FBI probe. I, I can't – Penny, I can't believe that the word FBI is in the sentence, okay? I know. It's, it's, it's crazy. But w- what is your take on the landscape in college basketball right now from that perspective? Well, I mean, to me, I think we've lost um... – We've lost our way when it comes to kids going to school to be to get their education because there's so many one and done kids. It's not about that anymore. It's not about going to make the university better. It's not about going to get with your teammates for a common goal to win the NCAA championship. It seems like more kids are about the finances of it or their families or their their handlers or somebody. The game is like so dirty now that it's not about what basketball has given us. We're not respecting the game enough. And then the NCAA has so many rules with the kids and with the coaches that it makes it really tough. What was your reaction when you saw the word FBI? I was amazed because there's no need for the FBI to be probing in, in NCAA or with kids. I mean, that's that's supposed to be, you know, left for the uh, the bad guys. This isn't bad stuff that's going on in the NCAA. I mean, this is this, these are kids that want to play basketball and want to go to school, and you're, you're handcuffing the, the coaches in the, in the universities to a certain extent. And uh, the kids, you know, they don't have money. They don't, they don't 
you know, it's it's amazing. It really, it's really amazing. So, a lot of this seems to stem from shoe companies, right? How, what what is the shoe culture in college basketball? Uh, the shoe culture is is huge because there's a big war going on with Nike, Adidas, Under Armour, and everybody's jockeying for the top players in college so that when these guys they want them to go to a uh their their school of their with their their logo on that shoe uh and when they go to the league hopefully they'll stay with that that logo and and everybody's jockeying and it's it's a big battle right now extremely competitive yes extremely so speaking of shoes uh we got to discuss little penny <laughs> uh, i very rarely is there a marketing program and look in that era nike's still brilliant in that era they owned sports marketing. So how did Little Penny come to be? How did that program and that creativity come to be? It came to be because Nike was trying to figure out a way to kind of get more exposure out of my game because I wasn't a trash talker. I wasn't um, flamboyant or flashy. And they had an advertising agency called Wyden and Kennedy that, that Nike had hired to come in and just kind of come up with some ideas. And they came to me one day and asked, would you like an alter ego? And we would call the alter ego Little Penny. And he would be the trash talkingist. Uh, he'd say everything that you would want to say. <laughs> and you just play ball like you always do. And I was like, <laughs> I think that'd be great. So that's how Little Penny came about. And the rest is history. What was the creative process like? When you go to do one of those, because there were several different spots. I just watched them all again on YouTube this morning. There were like what five or six or however many of them. What, yeah, what was, was the creative process like when you show up to do one of those spots? The 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 process was, you know, Chris Rock had already he had done his voiceovers for the uh, for the script, and then it was always hilarious to me because I'm hearing the, the the voiceovers for the first time as I'm saying my line, so I laughed a lot, and we had to do a lot of <laughs> second and third and fourth and fifth takes because I would laugh at what Chris Rock was saying to me uh, through the script because I didn't hear it beforehand, so. It was really fun. Like he would do his voiceovers, and then I would go in and, and do the uh, the video uh, of the commercial, and then do my part, and that's how we pieced it together. But it was it was great. You ever meet him? Yeah, I met him plenty of times. Uh, that that little penny thing really took him over the hump because at that time he wasn't Chris Rock. Right. He was a he was a comedian and well respected, but that little penny ad kind of helped thrust his career as well. I, I would I would think. Which of your shoe models is your favorite? Probably the penny one. Yeah, you know, you could never like the original, sick. the original one. They they've done such a great job with designing my shoes, and 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 what they've done. A lot of the kids they they really love my signature shoe line because they did a great job in the design on every every last shoe. I I, I wasn't disappointed with one shoe. Have we called Phil Knight yet and said all of my players at Memphis have to wear Penny Ones? You know what? We had a meeting at, I haven't called Phil yet, which is going to be, uh, part of my, my, my to-do list over the next month or even go out to Oregon to see him. But, uh, yeah, they've done, they've done a great job. We met with them at the final four and they're going to do all they can and more to, to, you know, to, um, support the University of Memphis because I'm here. I'm the first signature shoe athlete that Nike has had that's become a, a coach in college. So this is history for them and, and for me. So, we're going into it with a bang with Nike. That is very true, and it's something I hadn't considered. That that is that is interest. That's interesting. Really interesting. What what do you think? And and you don't. What do you think the value of that is? I think it's huge because you know you want to be on a level. Uh, it allows you to skip certain levels. You know, like you can't. You go right to being elite. You go right to being up there with the Dukes and the Kentuckys uh, when it comes to certain things that were Coach K. I mean, utmost respect, a legend and Coach Calipari, both legends, and they 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 grinded so hard to get their teams to the point of where they are now. And for me, because of me being a signature shoe athlete, I could thrust my team to that level, maybe not the highest level as they are because they deserve that, they've earned that, but we were right there, maybe a tier under that. And I think that's huge for the school because you know we we climbed a lot of la- a lot of uh, levels to get right there because of my. Uh, of who I have been for the for the company over the last uh, 20, 20 plus years, and the foams are back. All right, all the cray, the foams are back. Yes, in circulation, and they are not easy to get. Penny, they they do a great job of um of only putting a certain amount out there so that the shoe stays relevant. You don't want to overpopulate the um uh, 
the the country with the foams and then everybody's getting tired of them. We want them to just continue to stay hungry for the foams. Now that I can get a hold of you, I might be hitting you up. No, I'm totally kidding. Oh, yeah. You're, you're the man. You deserve Hey, man, just let me know what you need. <laughs> you're a hardworking totally man. <laughs> um, what is the... What is the timetable plan for you here? How do you define success in year one? How do you define success in year three? What is that timetable look like for you as the head coach of the Memphis Tigers? You know, it's funny uh, that you ask that because most coaches go in, in like what I would call careful stages. And uh, the way that I'm wired and the way that I'm built uh, – my expectations start from day one on what I want. It doesn't have to be I want to be here in year three, year two, or whatever. And it's just winning, period. Yeah, you know, making the NCAA tournament, winning our conference, that's what I'm expecting to do in my first year. I mean, I don't I don't waver from that. I'm not coming in cocky. It's just how I'm wired. I don't – and that's, that's the type of energy that we have in our city. You know, we believe. And I know that I, I believe in my team, and my team will believe in me and my staff and – I really do believe that we can we can win our conference and, and go to the NCAA tournament in the first year, and it's only going to get better every year. I want the best Shaquille O'Neal story that you can tell me <laughs> that is rated PG for uh, family consumption that we don't know. I know you got them, one that we haven't heard. Shaq had a couple things going on that was really hilarious. The one thing that he would do on – well, I could say three things, actually, and they would all be funny, and they're all PG – um, the first thing was he'd wait till everyone go to sleep on the plane, and then he'd run through the plane yelling and screaming and getting on everybody's nerves. This big 300-pound <laughs> athlete running through the aisles, and everybody's exhausted and tired, and now he has all the energy like a three-year-old at <laughs> 2 or 3 in the morning flying back after a game. That's one. Uh, the second one was he would tell the rookies, like if we went to Boston or if we went to New York and it was a blizzard or snowing outside Minnesota, he would have them take their – clothes their jackets and their tops off and just have no shirt on and then he would wrestle them in the snow (laughs) he would wrestle them in the snow for like a minute and then allow them to put their that's how silly he was but and the third one he would make them take showers with their uniforms on and shoes go right to the shower and shower with the uniform and shoes on so Shaq was he was fun to be around man he was uh but on the flip side of that he took care of those guys as well, all those rookies and the guys that he would just give a hard time to. He he really took care of them. So those were fun times for us in Orlando. Who's the best teammate you ever had? I would have to say Shaq. Yeah. You know, because Shaq respected me. He respected my game. He um he wanted to see me succeed. He wanted to see us succeed as a duo. He, he never thought that it was him versus me uh, and the way that we played the game together, man. I think that he just got kind of caught up in L.A., which is what you can do. You know, Los Angeles is my favorite city as well. So you can get caught up into the La La Land, and they kind of wowed him. And then you're looking at Jerry West, and you're looking at all these actors in Hollywood, and, you know, he went for that. And um, he got three championships out of it. So he did a good job, but he was definitely my, my best teammate. I want to know what it was like when you suited up against the Dream Team. I cannot imagine what that challenge must have been and how much growth you and your teammates must have experienced having had that opportunity. Well, first of all, being a sophomore in, sophomore in college to begin to get invited to that was uh, was a huge honor. But as soon as I walked through the door, it was the same feeling I had when I saw Michael Jordan come back and and I was playing against him when I was in Orlando. I'm looking at Larry Bird, I'm looking at Carl Malone, John Stockton, Magic Johnson, Clyde Drexler, David Robinson. I'm like, oh my god! Like, we're, <laughs> and I'm a sophomore in college. I'm like, okay, get it together, snap out of it, and go and compete and earn these guys respect. And the first scrimmage that we played them, we all had that same attitude, and we shocked them. We shocked them, and we beat them. And even though they said Michael Jordan was on the sideline and maybe Charles Barkley was on the sideline, they still had Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, um, John Stockton, Carl Malone, Patrick Ewing, all these guys. You know, these are these. Are, this isn't trash. This isn't like some some uh, some no name guys that we were playing against, but we shocked them. And then the next day. They turned the level up to a, they turned it up to another level that we couldn't even uh, go to. Everybody was uh, locked in, and they played us very physical, and there was no chance that we had. But the first day, we we shocked them. I need you to take me inside the gym. I want just warming up and whatnot. I know you were discussing sort of the shock of being there with them. What is the air? What is the air in the gym? What who is? The, I, I want to know all of that. That was the, that team. 
you're you're not that much older than me. We're basically the same age. It's the single greatest assemblage of talent ever. Yes. And so I was so ca- and I was a, I'm a Jordan guy. I had his number nine Olympic jersey. My whole room was wallpapered in MJ everything. So I I can't imagine. Like, what are your teammates? You and the boys saying to each other, were they the same way? Yeah, we were whispering to each other, man, can you believe that's, look over there, we're about to play against Larry Bird, or we're about to play against Michael Jordan, we're about to play against Charles Barkley, Scottie Pippen, it was, it was an amazing feeling, it really was, and we were in the layup line, and we were trying to do dunks that we probably couldn't even think about doing, but we were just trying anything to try to impress the, the, uh, the USA team, because it was the greatest amount of talent assembled ever that, that's been on the team, and we were excited to be there, and we took full advantage of it. Was Rodney Rogers on your team? Yes, Rodney Rogers was on the team. Have you have you spoken to him in recent years? Talk you know, I have not spoken to Rodney. No. Uh, it was unfortunate what happened to him. Uh, he got paralyzed in a uh, motorcycle crash, uh, right? Yeah, like a like a four wheeler accident. Yeah, and uh, I have not, man. And I feel bad about that because Rodney was one of the nicest guys that you ever wanted to meet, and um, you know he had an unbelievable career, and he was such a monster in college and in high school. So it was, uh, yeah, he was on that team. Are you still uh, a minority owner of the Grizzlies? Yes. Okay. So you, Justin Timberlake, and Peyton Manning buy in, right? Yes. That is how this thing went down. Yes. When you three are talking about ball, how does that go? What are those conversations like? Man, pretty simple. Like, hey, man, they understand Peyton and and, uh, JT, they understand talent. They're sports fans and – they they just enjoy the game, man, and how athletic guys are. I think that's the the, the biggest thing, and how big, how much bigger guys are when you see them, and how athletic the game has gotten. And uh, you know, they just enjoy the game, man, just like any other fan. They're fans, even though they're great at what they do. You know, they still love the game of basketball. What what is your perception of the game today? My perception of the game today is, you know, it's 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 in great hands. I think Adam Silver is doing a great job. Uh, David Stern definitely left it in great hands. And they're, they're trying more things, like even with this all-star game and they're listening to the fans more. They're listening to the players more. It's not just one-sided and the game itself is so great because it's about scoring and that's what the kids want to see. That's what we want to see. No one wants to see a 70 to 72 game and the game is in great hands. I'm, I'm enjoying watching the younger athletes because the game is so young now. Uh, some of the plays that have been made this year and over the past few years since I've been retired are truly amazing and I'm a huge fan. Where do you put LeBron in the in history in the or all-time in the, greats? I'd have to put him behind MJ, and I, yeah. I, I love. He's really good, man. I love LeBron. You'll never hear me say anything negative about LeBron. I'm a huge LeBron James fan because he's so unselfish, and he gets a lot of flack for a lot of things, but he's a winner. That's what you have to put by his name, and man, he can put some numbers together uh, throughout a year. And I looked at the stats again yesterday, and amazing. He just amazes me every single year because it seems like he gets better and better and better. But one thing that I do know about him, he takes care of his body and he he understands how to be a true professional. Year 15, right? Yes. And and he's just dominating the game. He does what he wants to do. I don't know how he continues to evolve and improve as he what is he 32? I think he's like maybe maybe 32 years old or so. Yeah, it, it seems like he's, he's fascinating way longer than that because he's been so successful every year that he's been in the league. It is fascinating. All right, brother. I can't thank you enough for your time. I can't thank you enough for your insight and sharing your life with us on the Marty Smith's America podcast, and I wish you the absolute best. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I'm going to come see y'all play, all right? Yeah, please do. Please do. You're welcome. You're welcome to come anytime. Be well. Thank you. Wow. Tremendous conversation with Penny Hardaway. I I knew he was interesting because he's had done so many cool things in his life. Uh, when he first started in the NBA, as you heard him say there, he was one of the most dominant players in the entire league. He was one of the first really long guys to play at the point guard position and set up others at six seven six eight. That was revolutionary at his time, and he was a revolutionary talent. So to learn about his thoughts on his career and his thoughts on retirement and his thoughts on the game now and all of those things, uh, but thanks so much to him uh, – I know he's going to do well at Memphis because you can hear the passion. You can hear the drive. You can hear the focus. And he's been successful in everything he's ever done. So I wish him the best. It was awesome to hang out with him. Now it's time for the Marty Party. 
What are we going to do, bud? We're going to drink one of these beers. Hand me one of them damn beers real quick. What's up, man? Party party. The party party today is a little bit different. Uh, normally, I hang out with a friend of mine and talk about life, talk about ball. But it is Marathon Monday. Uh, when this particular Marty Smith's America podcast posts, it is Boston Marathon Monday 2018, and it that's a very special day for me. Uh, it has been for several years now. I ran the marathon in 2014. It was April 21st, 2014, when I ran the Boston Marathon. That was the year after the Boston Marathon bombing, which happened uh, on my birthday, April 15th in 2013 um at that moment while that was unfolding that horror that cowardice was unfolding and terror and fear swept through boston and through america i made the decision right then that i was going to run that race the next year and i immediately began searching for methods to do that and ultimately happened upon a charity in Boston called Tenacity. They do great things in greater Boston for education and for the, the uh, youth of that city. And I basically cold emailed the director of that charity and I asked if I could be a part of it. And I raised a bunch of money, largely uh, from the pocket of a friend of mine who played in the major leagues, who had a foundation, uh, Jake Peavy. Some of you may have heard of Jake. The Jake Peavy Foundation was kind enough to basically foot my bill to go run the Boston Marathon. And so I didn't have to qualify on time. I didn't have to run a marathon in order to gain entrance into Boston because I had a friend who was very passionate about that city as well. Jake, of course, was on the 2013 World Championship Boston Red Sox. He was a pitcher on that team and bought the duck boat that he rode in during their world championship celebration through the streets of Boston. Uh, that is well documented. So I began to train, and during that training, uh, I spent a lot of time being introspective and thinking about my life and my triumphs and failures and mistakes and things I'd done right and wrong. And all of that, through those months and months, really led me to one particular theme and that is the road looks different to the man who walked it and that is unequivocal truth if you really think about it what might be comfortable in a car might be awful for the runner what might seem smooth while you're moving in a vehicle might not be smooth for the runner the runner has to manage every pothole and fissure and blemish and even the slightest incline becomes a challenge. So the road looks very different when you're actually on it. And I've always been an avid endurance athlete, at least since I finished being a stick and ball athlete many years ago, 20 years ago. So running Boston was, it was an education first. And part of that education was about Patriots Day itself. For most of us, Patriots Day is just another Monday. It's another early morning cup of coffee and a rush hour and meetings and deadlines. But for New England, Patriots Day is the greatest day. It is their day. And those cowards with those bombs tried to snatch that day from the people of New England. And they would not be deterred. And April 21st, 2014 was the day that they showed up in droves, mil a million of them was the estimated crowd, to make damn sure that they snatched their day back from the clutches of that cowardice. And to have lived it and to have participated within it and been immersed within it was one of the greatest moments of my life. I openly wept three times during the race. The first time was at mile seven. There was a young lady in front of me. We were as far to the left as we could be. And she saw her family all the way to the right, uh, flanking us all the way to the right. Her family erupted in cheers as we made their way to them. And they were screaming her name. Her name was Caitlin. I remember it very vividly. And she darted right in front of me to her family and she embraced them, and it was wonderful to witness, and I got openly emotional watching it happen 
But I had to tell myself, you got to let this go, man. You cannot have these emotions because if you have these emotions, you will never finish this challenge. I couldn't let those things affect me. It would get me off my pace. It would take my focus. And focus is twofold that day. Focus is not only the necessary steps to finish a marathon. Focus is also why I was there, and that was to watch the people of New England and Boston take their day back. And I would have to remind myself of that a couple of times during the race. The second time that I got emotional was at about mile 12. And I was running along, and I happened upon this lady in a um, an American flag bikini, waving an American flag as loud as she could, and screaming at the top of her lungs, an American won the Boston Marathon. Meb won the Boston Marathon that year. It was the first time since 1983 that an American had won that race. And I was emotional about that, but I meant like, it was an amazing moment. It's 85 degrees outside that day in Boston, and all of us running by had chills all over us. The One of the most moving moments of that race for me was happening upon Dick and Rick Hoyt. And if you guys don't know about Dick and Rick's story, look it up. E60 has done a piece on them that is masterful. But the basic synopsis of their life together is that Rick was born with cerebral palsy. At the time I saw them, he was 52 years old. His father was 73. And throughout Rick's entire life, Dick included Rick in his endurance life. They did Ironman triathlons together, during which Dick would pull Rick in a boat with a tow rope as he swam. So during the Boston Marathon, I happen upon this group of five or six folks running alongside in a in a semicircle formation in red Team Hoyt shirts surrounding a glorified jogging stroller. And I, at the time, admittedly, I did not know their story. I didn't. I should have, but I was so moved by what I saw. And everyone lining the streets was losing their minds when Dick and Rick and Team Hoyt ran by. So I ran over to them. And I grabbed Rick by the arm, sitting in that stroller, and I pumped my fist at him, and I told him he was a badass because he's a badass. And I said the same thing to his father, and I was a mess. I was a weeping mess. Anyone who has a soul was a weeping mess when they saw that. I made my way on through. At mile 17, I really struggled. Uh, I started to feel cramping in my right hamstring. And I knew that was bad. It was a lot hotter that day than expected, but I carried on and I got to, it got really, really bad later in the race that cramping did. I felt like I'd hydrated well, but even the elite runners that day told me after the race that they started to cramp at the same place I did. That made me feel a little bit better. Now, where it got really thick for me was the Newton Hills. These are a series of hills that are a bunch of middle fingers. You're running along on what by comparison is a flat plain, and as far up as you can see to the horizon, there are runners, thousands of runners. And all you can think is, wow, I have to run up that damn thing. It's not even Heartbreak Hill. Heartbreak Hill is aptly named. And I got up, I got up to the top of it, and that was the first time that I saw my wife and my friend Greg Morin my wife Laney and my friend Greg Morin, who had stationed themselves at the top of Heartbreak Hill, at the stoplight at the top. I had missed them at mile 10. Somehow, I don't know how, I had missed them at mile 10. I actually walked over and high-fived a kid at mile 10 who was standing directly in front of them. I didn't see them. So I really wanted to see them at 21. I see them. I could not stop. I did not take any pictures with them because I was afraid if I stopped, I wouldn't go again. Carried on. That is starting to bring me to the final stages. As I get to 23, I am, I mean, my calf started to give up on me. I was running virtually straight-legged for the final three miles of this race. But as I entered the city, I started to think about 2013. I saw the famous Sitco sign out of Fenway start to come into view, and I knew I was getting close. 
I ran down a hill and under a tunnel, and on the top of that tunnel, it said 1K to go. I tried very hard to do the math. I couldn't. It's not my strong suit. And I strode on until I got to the final left turn at Boylston Street, the most iconic, the most iconic couple of hundred yards in all of endurance sports. And when I took that left, it felt like the seas parted. The street got really wide and the crowd was rowdy as hell. As if it was that crowd's mission to guide us home on this wave of passion and resolve. I expected the finish line to be really close when I took that left. I was wrong. It was not close. It was way further away than I thought it was going to be. And I saw over the finish line, very small, it said 358 something. My whole mission was to beat four hours in that race. If I didn't beat four hours, I wouldn't have go, I couldn't come home. I just would have been so disappointed in myself. More than four hours to me was completely unacceptable given the training it took to get there. And so I tried to sprint. My legs were a complete mess. I managed to get my left knee bent well enough to run faster. And at this point, I was at a 10 plus mile pace. For the first 17 miles of that race, I was running about an 817 pace. Ultimately, I made it past that finish line at 359.07. I cannot describe the way that my legs felt. I'd run marathons before. But this one was harder, much, much harder. And all I wanted to do was sit down. But I knew if I, if I didn't keep walking, the entire lower, ha- lower half of my body would lock up. I knew it would. So I walked. And as I walked, I heard my name. And when I heard my name, I looked to my right, and there stood Boston Police Officer Brian Smigelski, my friend. I met Smig through Jake Peavy the previous year at the World Series. He had provided security for us during the World Series. And he yelled my name and he ran over to me. And he happened to be working the finish line that day. Just like he was the year before. I know I didn't look very good at that moment. And he, Smig really wanted to put me in a wheelchair. But I was hard-headed. I wasn't having that. I was there that day for those people that could not run. I was there that day for Sean Collier, the MIT police officer who was slain by those bombers. Sean's brother Andy at the time worked at Hendrick Motorsports, the NASCAR organization who fields cars for Jimmy Johnson and fielded cars for Jeff Gordon and Dale Earnhardt Jr. and and the greatest of the great. And Andy is my friend and I was I was also running for Chase Kowalski, a sweet little eight-year-old boy who was murdered at Sandy Hook. He loved to run too. He loved to run too. His parents, Rebecca and Steve, still host triathlons every single year in his memory. And I was there to run for those people, and I damn sure could walk for them. But as I walked, I was really cramping at this point, and so I sat down on a curb to stretch. All I could do was put my head between my legs and cry. I I don't know why to this day. I don't know why it was so emotional, whether it was the accomplishment of the moment or the physical toll, or maybe it was all of it. I still, all these years later, haven't gone deep enough to really get that answer within myself. Smig didn't know what to do. He just put his hands on my shoulders. He didn't know what to say. Finally, a doctor came up to me and said, I should stand and move or I'd be in worse shape. And it was either get up and move or we're putting you in a wheelchair and taking you to the hospital. My wife, uh, Lainey, and my friend Greg were several blocks down at this point at Arlington Street. And they couldn't get any closer to me, so I had to walk to them. And I'll never forget this moment as long as I live. It's still pretty emotional for me. Smig helped me up, and he looked at one of his brothers at that finish line, one of his brothers with the Boston PD, and he said, you man this post. I'm taking my friend to his family. And every time I think about that, I get emotional. I cannot help it. He will never know what that did for me just then. Someday I hope I can articulate it to him uh, because I really want to. And as I hobbled myself down Boylston with Smig holding me up, I was completely overwhelmed with the rush of everything that had happened a year before. And I thought about those runners. I thought about those people who were finishing at the almost the exact same time I finished that race when that bomb went off, who felt just like I felt, and who ran into the fire to help others. 
And I just felt really small. I felt really small just then. And so every year at this time, I think very hard about the importance of that race. I want to run it again terribly. And I will one day. So that's my Boston Marathon story. Uh, I will never view that race or that day or that city the same way. And uh, I am so appreciative that they continue that resolve. And I'm so inspired by the fact that they would not be deterred. If ever there was a Marty party, that's it. Uh, very rarely do I get that emotional about stuff like that. But uh, that one's really important to me. So there you have it. That's my Boston Marathon story. Good luck to all the runners uh, who are participating this year. I hope it's as tremendous an experience for you as it was for me. We're going to shift gears now from uh, an emotional moment in my life to, well, what could very potentially become an emotional moment in my life. Words, sayings, or just a way of life. Roman candles. That's a redneck mortar launcher. That's what that is. <laughs> this is Hillbillyisms. I just wanted to call y'all and tell you. I can give you a little Wawa update from southern New Jersey. They make these breakfast burritos now. Oh, I'll tell you what. They're so good you want to rub it in your hair. Plus a nice 20-ounce <laughs> cup of that Cuban roast. Oh, man, you guys got to get yourself up here. <laughs> uh, yeah, the Wawa breakfast burrito. Look, man, I got a house in South Jersey. I'm, I'm, I got a summer home up there, so give me a month or so, brother. And I'll be on my way up there to the Wawa right down the street from my house. And I will sample the breakfast burrito just for you. What did he say? The Cuban roast? Yeah, he talked about the Cuban roast. I've never gone with the Cuban roast, Travis. I'm a vanilla coffee guy. I go with the vanilla roast. I mean, I think you've got to try it, right? Oh, I'm definitely going to try the Cuban roast and the breakfast burrito hair rubbing. Just remembered, cinnamon's not soluble. Cinnamon is never soluble. As much as I try every single morning of my life. It is not soluble. I put cinnamon in my coffee, and when I'm done with my coffee every morning, I have to elude the uh, cinnamon at the bottom of the mug. I, it doesn't. You can spin it until you have a cramp in your arm, and it just doesn't. It doesn't dissolve. Residue is the word I think you're looking for there. Residue is very good. Is the word elude right? That's the right uh, word. Elude is to av- basically avoid, isn't it? Yes, right. That's what it avoids thought. the okay, water. Travis is my walking thesaurus, so I just wanted to make sure I was correct there. This thesaurus doesn't carry much knowledge. Uh, brother, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it without you. And on that note, I want to say thank you to you for all of your hard work. I appreciate you so much. I appreciate Louise Cornetta. I appreciate everyone involved at ESPN Podcasts. Listen, guys, above all, I appreciate you guys. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much to Coach Hardaway for taking the time to hang out with us and A quick reminder, guys, I need you to do me a big favor. Subscribe, rate, and review the Marty Smith America podcast. You guys are awesome. I appreciate your conviction and devotion regarding this platform. We love doing it. And when you guys subscribe to it, it makes sure that we can continue to do it. So thank you for that. Also, call us just like my man did about the Wawa breakfast burrito. Number 860-516-516. One three one five. Call us with your story. 860-516-1315.